Depression and diabetes relationship. Can you avoid both? Recently, I had a patient who struggles with both depression and diabetes. She asked if there were things she can do to avoid both from worsening, and especially if she can do something to avoid both for her children from developing. If you are like my patient, then you would learn a lot in this program. So stay tuned for our discussion with Dr. Nazneen. Thank you so much, friends, for joining today. I'm sure you are going to learn a lot from our guest, Dr. Nazneen Lokanwala. Hello, Dr. L. Hi there. Yeah, Dr. L has been my colleague in the medical school, and it's so great to connect with her on this platform today. So Dr. Nazneen Lokanwala is a clinical endocrinologist and specializes in treatment of diabetes. She is practiced since 2002, currently a consultant endocrinologist in Stewart Healthcare in Massachusetts. She has worked in both academic and private practices, and her trans-global experiences have taught her the importance of contextual healthcare especially in treating chronic conditions like diabetes. She's deeply committed to patient empowerment through education, financially sustainable health solutions, and preservation of health and wellness to optimize quality of life and personal productivity. And if this is first time you're joining us, my name is Dr. Rosina Lakani, and I have been helping people with stress, anxiety, and depression for last 20 years as a medical doctor specializing in psychiatry, a university professor, and a best-selling author. And you are watching and listening to Happy and Healthy Minded Dr. Rosina, where we share practical tips for your mental fitness. It is broadcasted live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific time here. If you're joining us during the live program, you can ask questions by putting them in the comment section. And if you would like to join for live program in future and get the text for reminders for future program, you can text the word joyful to 38470 and we'd be happy to send you the reminder text. Some people who are joining from outside US and can't get those texts, they can also join our Facebook group, Happy and Healthy Mind with Dr. Rosina, where you'll get the information about the upcoming program and all the resources that we share over. And remember to like, subscribe, and hit the bell button based on the platform you're watching us. I just want to share this disclaimer that all this information is for education purposes only and should not be considered treatment. Please refer to your healthcare professional for specific advice. So coming to today's topic, today we are discussing the diabetes and depression relationship and how can we prevent or reduce the effect of both. So Dr. L, can you tell us why we all should take precautions against diabetes and depression, whether we have it or don't have it? So first of all, thank you so much, Dr. Rosina, for and giving me this opportunity to talk about diabetes, a chronic disease that has really taken both the developed and developing worlds on epidemic proportions. So it's really a very common problem. And with that, depression is also closely correlated with diabetes. I think the importance of really dealing with both is that diabetes and many chronic diseases require a lot of uh, self-empowerment and uh, self-motivation. And these two factors are really affected in depression. And so they both can really feed off of each other. That's true. And as I was kind of thinking about this topic and I looked at some of the data and found out that the prevalence rate of depression could be 
up to three times higher in patients with type 1 diabetes and twice as high in people with type 2 diabetes compared with general population. And on the other hand, you also see that depression may increase the risk of diabetes by 60%. And there are many environmental factors along with the genetic factors that could have led to this comorbidity of these two diseases. And, you know, environmental factors like lack of sleep, low socioeconomic status, lack of exercise, poor diet. And so like, you know, both conditions could be affected by these environmental factors. And one common factor involved in both depression and diabetes is stress. Because the stress causes the release of this cortisol, the stress hormone, and that can disrupt the hippocampus, and which is the region in, of the brain that is also involved in depression as well as diabetes type 2. So that's why they kind of can lead to each other or increase the risk of each other. And therefore, I think it's very important that we take precautions to prevent and reduce both. So Dr. L, can you share an example of someone that you may have seen in your practice that after applying some of the tools that you're going to talk about was able to benefit from them? Yeah, sure. So let me share sort of a, a pretty characteristic case with you. This is a 45-year-old lady. She actually had a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome. That's not an uncommon diagnosis. And when she eventually got pregnant, she actually developed diabetes during pregnancy. And after the pregnancy, the diabetes remitted. But now, five years later, she, she was feeling very fatigued fatigued. And she also noted that she was getting up at night to urinate once. And so she presented to her primary care doctor. And lo and behold, her routine blood work revealed a glucose, a fasting glucose of 250 and a hemoglobin A1C, that, which is a three-month glucose average that was clearly elevated at 9.8. So what is the normal range for glucose and hemoglobin A1C? So the normal range for glucose is anything, a fasting glucose of over 126 is a diagnosis of overdiabetes. You have to measure that twice. If you have a glucose between 100 and 125, we consider that to be in the pre-diabetes range. For hemoglobin A1C, anything over 5.7 up until up to 6.4 is a pre-diabetes range. And then anything over for 6.5 is over diabetes. Thank you. That's helpful. So you also mentioned that she was gaining weight. So what was her weight like? So she was about five feet, six inches tall, and she had progressively gained weight about 20 pounds uh, over the past one year. And that set her BMI of, um, up to that set her BMI up to about 38. She was about two, 238 pounds by now. And so was the general range of BMI that we consider obesity or not? Sure. So the general range for BMI is a normal BMI is from 20 to 25. And then anything over from 26 to 30 is overweight and over 30 is clearly obesity. All right, that's helpful. So tell us how did her life change after she practiced some of the tools we are going to talk about today? Okay. 
So uh, I think that uh, what's most important is when she got the diagnosis of diabetes, when she got the diagnosis of diabetes, she actually was quite depressed. So I think the way that her life really changed was she was very anxious and depressed with her initial diagnosis of diabetes. She was also feeling very overwhelmed with her diagnosis. And what happened was after we gave her the tools, she felt like she was back in control. She had a renewed sense of she physically felt well again. And mentally, she just felt a lot stronger. And this really improved her personal productivity in all spheres of life, including motherhood, being at par at work, as well as uh, prioritizing her personal health. Wonderful. So why don't we jump into some of the tools that helped her? Dr. Rosina, I'm going to first start with describing her problems a little bit more because I think that uh, that's important that we describe the problems that a woman in her age group is facing. So she actually, her youngest child was five years old and she just went back to work as an administrative secretary. This transition in her life was quite stressful in and of itself because she was having to balance, you know, her home uh, priorities uh, with a pretty high stress job. The problem with her job was is it was uh, primarily sedentary as she was in front of the computer a lot, but it was a very demanding position. So she would find herself very exhausted on returning home. And so that itself was difficult. The other problem was she had now lack of time. So what she began to, uh, the type of foods that she would prepare for her family were often fast foods and processed food, which we often fall back on when we have a shortage of time. That's true. And, yeah. And, and especially when you're stressed out, you, you tend to go to the supermarket and, and tend to pick up the things that are just right in front of you. And sometimes those are the worst type of foods for you. The third thing was she, as I told you, she was very anxious and depressed because her father actually had diabetes and he didn't take care of his diabetes. And he died at 70 years old with renal failure and after having a few toes amputated. So even though she was deeply fearful of this diagnosis because she saw, she saw her father die from it, she that that anxiety and fear really uh, made her feel very overwhelmed with the diagnosis. But uh, with all the competing burdens in her life with trying to uh, balance home and life, along with this fear and anxiety of the diagnosis of diabetes itself, really put her in a in, in a tough situation when she first was given the diagnosis of diabetes. So the first important thing that when I'm seeing a patient like this is the the biggest thing that sometimes will depress an individual is a feeling of a depressed self-worth and a feeling of guilt that there's something wrong that they did to actually be overweight and and develop the uh, the diagnosis of diabetes and at that point it's really important to help them understand how important genetics is in predisposing them to both these conditions. So it, it actually is, they actually feel a sense of relief when they know that they were actually prone to these diseases and it's not all of their fault. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the environment is 
the environment that we live in is often not the environment that we've chosen to be. This is the environment that we find ourselves in. And they're very, there are a lot of unnatural components of our environment. One is that we one is that we spend a, a lot of time indoors and sedentary, and yet we have a lot of dem demands on our time schedule. And this really makes it difficult to have enough physical activity during the normal course of our day. The second thing about our, our environments is that our calories are very accessible. So instead of walking to a bakery shop and then walking to get our milk and our, our dairy products and walking to a vegetable vendor, we actually drive in our cars to the grocery store and once a week can put in so many different processed foods, which by the way, are all very calorie dense, easy to prepare meals that, um, those two, and that's part of our food industry, and, and our food industry makes a lot of money by marketing these different products that are not always healthy for us, but they're very tempting for us. And they, it's almost like works on our vulnerability when we feel stressed out. We feel better for a very brief moment when we have some of these very processed, uh, delicious carbohydrates, but actually they're not physically good for us. And, and I think that's what makes our environment so challenging today. So I think when I help to tease away the difficulties that they're facing, that in itself helps them feel better that they're not in this position because it is completely their fault, but they just need to understand what their risks were to getting to where they are. And what can and, they do about it? So I, I think that, so the first important thing is creating awareness, awareness of what, what are the problems. So that was the first step. The second thing is understanding that the really important aspect of diet and exercise. So when they see a physician, they often expect to be just handed a prescription. Often the interactions between the physician and the patient are brief. And the quickest thing that we can do is uh, give them a prescription. But in fact, I really help them understand that their diet and their exercise are two of the most powerful uh, medications in addition to a prescription medication. And in fact, the diet and the exercise are foundational therapies. And the important thing for the patient to understand is that all three have their place and they actually have to work together. So you just can't do it often. Like if you have a hemoglobin A1C of 9.8, you're not going to be able to do it with diet and exercise alone. You will need a prescription medication, but you have to understand that each of them are medications in their own place. And these three components really have to work together. Yeah, that makes so much sense because, you know, si similar to depression, many people think that only the medication is the treatment for depression, but actually, you know, the diet and the exercise and proper sleep and meditation and social connectedness, these are all the tools that have shown to reduce depression and anxiety by 30 to 40%. 
And so sometimes people think, oh, the doctor only said take care of the diet or do the exercise. And as if it's like, you know, it's not important because it's common and it's simple and you can do it without any prescription. That doesn't decrease the power of these things uh, in terms of your overall health, uh, whether it's diabetes or depression. So, exactly. Yeah. So thank you for sharing. So what kind of changes do you think, let's say with this uh, case example that you were sharing, what kind of changes did she practically brought in her life that helped her? Right. So what we did was we, I always will uh, refer my patients to our nutritionist and diabetes educator. I've really helped them to understand that it's really a team of people that take care of you. This is not just physician centric. And I think when, when you have that team approach, they sort of are able to digest uh, the information around dieting and exercise and monitoring their chronic disease with different messages and in a repeated fashion. But it also enables them to build relationships with a few different people in their care team. And I think that makes them feel like there are some human beings that actually really care about me and and really want to make me feel well again. And just that interaction with a few different people in the care team actually is, is powerful. For the diet, just to be brief here, and if you have further questions, we can expand on it, but it's basically a healthy plate diet. So that half of your plate should be non-starchy vegetables, quarter of your plate should be should be a protein, and then a quarter of your plate should be carbohydrates. And, and that's actually really hard. If you look at a lot of the diet choices that we have that come in boxes or are easily prepared, whether it's from pizza to pasta, a lot of it is actually pure carbohydrate. Sometimes there's protein, but a lot of times it's high fat protein. And these, these food choices have very little vegetables on it. If anything, there's might be like tiny little specks of vegetable on it. So we're very far from the actual plate diet that we recommend that half of your plate should be non-starchy vegetables. Now that can be really challenging for a, a mother who has to go to work, come home, have a proper meal on the table. And so we work through other options like working with uh, frozen vegetables. I mean, there's nothing wrong with frozen vegetables on those weeknights or preparing for your meals like on a Sunday or Saturday and maybe using Tupperware containers to store your pre-cut vegetables. So they're all ready when you're very tired from work, you already have your pre-cut vegetables that you've, that you've uh, sort of prepared over the weekend. So there are some interesting little ways that you can get around to make sure that you have those non-starchy vegetables available. There are a lot of Tupper, interesting Tupperware containers that are available online now that really sort of honor this plate methodology where they have section, their sectional Tupperwares to help encourage you to stick to the plate diet. So those, those big borders in the sectional Tupperware are like a very strong reminder of the portions that you should actually be eating. And that can actually be quite helpful. Wonderful. Yeah, it seems like I'm showing the plate diagram over here 
I think there are kind of different, some different versions of it out there. We have talked about it in one of our other program when we talked about food and mood because food has such an impact on mood also. And so what does this, can you go a little bit in terms of how does too much of carbohydrate affect diabetes? So what happens, this is, let's go into pre-diabetes, okay, or even with people who are prone to obesity. What happens is you have this hormone called insulin that is produced by by the pancreas in your body. And every time you put a glucose, any type of glucose containing food in your mouth, it will be metabolized and that glucose reaches your bloodstream and it sends a signal to your pancreas. And if your pancreas is healthy, it will produce a good big spurt of insulin into your system. What insulin does is it's actually a fat building hormone. So it will take all that excess glucose out of your bloodstream and it pushes it into a fat cell if you don't utilize that glucose. So if you're if you're consuming excess calories and you're sitting in front of your computer, you're not using any of that glucose for physical activity, the insulin will get that glucose out of your bloodstream, but it pushes it into a fat cell. And the thing about a fat cell is a fat cell is not just a physical problem. It actually is a very chemically dynamic cell. And that fat cell will produce a lot of chemicals that make you resistant to insulin. And so now your pancreas has to put out three to four times the amount of insulin to overcome that resistance. And then you set yourself up into a cycle where you there's more insulin in your body, you're putting more glucose in your body, there's more insulin in your body, and the insulin is making more fat cells, and that's what really builds up the weight. But in somebody who has diabetes and a genetic predisposition to insulin deficiency, finally their pancreas poops out and it's like, I just can't keep up with having to produce this much insulin. It's not able to get the glucose out of the bloodstream. And that's when the glucose levels rise and you develop diabetes. So what is the role of exercise in diabetes? So exercise is actually another really powerful medication to combat diabetes. As I told you, insulin is a gatekeeper for to allow glucose to enter your cells all the time. So you need insulin around 24-7 at all times. Every single cell in your body needs glucose for its energy. And glucose is uh, and insulin is the gatekeeper. What happens though, when you're exercising, that's the one exception where, where you don't need insulin. And there's these little receptors in your muscle cell that when your muscle cell is being used, it goes to the surface of the cell and it opens the glucose gate on its own. And the glucose is able to go from the bloodstream into your muscle cell without the help of any insulin. And the most amazing thing about the glucose in your muscle cell is it gets utilized. It doesn't get stored like it did in the fat cell. So not only do you lose a fat cell, which is not a very good metabolic cell for your body, but you, you make your muscle cell more plump, which is a much better cell to have in your body 
which actually reduces your insulin resistance. And, but the thing about exercise is you have to treat it just like a medication. So sporadic exercise doesn't help. You have to exercise every day, just like you take a medication every day. We don't prescribe medications once or twice a week. We prescribe medications to be taken every day. And that's the same thing about exercise. So during the exercise itself, the glucose can actually go down, but if you exercise every day, your muscle cells actually become plumper and they actually multiply over time, especially when they're being stimulated with daily exercise. And that's a really important role of exercise. Wonderful. And so, so is for depression. So exercise mm -hmm. releases endorphins in your brain. And endorphin makes you feel good. So it's a feel-good hormone that by pumping the exercise, and actually there was a, one research that they did was uh, when people did 30 minutes of exercise five days a week or total of 150 minutes of exercise a week, that had itself a healing power for depression. So a lot of people with mild to moderate depression, they could get better by doing exercise. The bigger problem with depression is that a person who is really depressed don't have the motivation to do the exercise. And so sometimes you have to kind of give the medication to improve the motivation enough so they do the exercise. And when they do exercise, that depression really gets better. So it seems like if you do exercise, you can help both your diabetes and depression. Yeah. I, I like to, when I talk about the diet and exercise, there's also another very interesting sort of mental impact it has. When you're dieting, it's often a restrictive activity. It's You have to call upon your mental strength to discipline yourself to portion control. And you it's kind of a little bit of a martyr feeling. You feel sorry for yourself that I can't eat what I want to eat. When you exercise, it's like a feel good, like, you know, I'm amazing because I actually went out and exercised. So it has a sort of a positive mental impact. So where there, and, and there has to be a combination. I mean, there has to be a personal discipline, but then you want there to be a medication to spurn your motivation towards life. And exercise actually can do that. And that's why the diet and the exercise often have to go hand in hand. Wonderful. I'm getting a very relevant question. And so Kaya is asking, how long after you eat do you have to exercise and use the glucose before it settles to fat? So I will often tell my patients to exercise or, or, and this is not strenuous exercise, this is sort of moderate aerobic exercise one hour after they eat. And the reason that you wanna do it one hour after you eat, you don't wanna do it immediately after you eat because a lot of blood supply is going to your gut to actually help with the absorption of your nutrients. But one hour after food is when you have that peak glucose in your blood. And that's a really good time to dispose your blood of that excess glucose. And so if you go for a little brisk walk one hour after exercising, even doing it like for 15 minutes, a little brief walk one hour after eating is, is something that I tell my patients to Wonderful. do. Wonderful. What about how much before eating you should exercise? 
Uh, that you could, you know, uh, do it at any time. So let's say somebody really wants to ex do all their exercise at one time in the morning. That's great. Sometimes people who are already on insulin, we have to work over those, the schedule of exercise much more because as I told you, exercise has a real impact on your glucose levels. And sometimes that requires some insulin adjustment. Wonderful. We are talking such important things and I want to continue, but our time is getting up. So I wanted to ask if people want more information about these topics, do you have a resource that we could share? Sure. You know, there are two really important things that I want to mention very briefly that you'll be able to see more on my resources. But one is monitoring your chronic disease. For diabetes, glucose is a very powerful way of monitoring it with glucose meters. It's extremely important to monitor whether it's your weight, whether it's your glucose, whether it's your blood pressure. Monitoring your chronic disease on a regular basis is something that's very important to do to give you clarity in that road ahead and to set objective goals. So understanding the goal, understanding what the goals are, setting those objective goals and monitoring where you are is very important. The second component that I wanna mention is the concept of a healthcare companion, which I have really developed in my nonprofit, my nonprofit organization called Glucose Trail. A healthcare companion can be anybody. It could be a daughter, a son, a friend, your spouse, a sister, somebody who loves you, who feels well enough to share in the diagnosis that you have and to keep you accountable. So if they know how bad off you are, they know what your goals are, on the down days, on the days that you feel demotivated, you have a person in your life that, that loves you and wants to help you, helps to keep you accountable because you need that other human being to lift you up when you're feeling very fatigued and when you feel like you lack the energy because it is your own mental strength that's going to help you eventually overcome. But on the down days, sometimes you need that love in your life to help pu pull you up and find that mental strength. And sometimes I find patients are very much alone. And as a physician and our diabetes care team, we try to be those very concerned, caring people in their lives. And that's where we find a lot of success stories. Wonderful. Yeah. And same applies for depression. Like, you know, if you have a buddy, a support system, that's why social connectedness is such a big role in the control of or managing your depression. So thank you for sharing that resource. And we were showing the PowerPoint, but we were not able to go through the whole PowerPoint. And so we are going to go ahead and put the PowerPoint also in on the gift page. And as I mentioned earlier, you can get the access to the gift page by texting joyful to 38470 or joining our Facebook group, Happy and Healthy Mind with Dr. Rosina. And so before we go into the special, do you have any last message, Dr. L? 
I just want to really thank you, Dr. Rosina. The effort that you're putting in of connecting mental health with chronic disease is so important and so powerful. I think this was a short foray in, into this huge opportunity. I really look forward to doing bigger and brighter things with you and, and hope that we can really collaborate in the future. Thank you so much for joining and uh, uh, now for the special. So today we're going to keep the special short, but it's very important. So what happened was yesterday I was uh, talking to a patient who was doing really well with one of the new treatments we are providing. And so then she said, you know, I was doing really well, but I'm not doing well for last week. And I said, what happened last week? And she said, my stress level is very high because I'm at this new job and I'm learning all these new things. And so I asked her, are you doing, you know, what stress management techniques you are doing at this time and she said oh I don't have time I just am so busy trying to learn and I said but you can always practice the mindfulness practices throughout the day and she said I don't even have one minute to practice and so I realized that many times people get confused that to be mindful you have to have extra time so I would refer people to the bigger video that we made on map of mindfulness. So mindfulness has three components. One is meditation. And so she was talking about, I don't have time to sit down and do the meditation. One is attitude. And you don't need any extra time for attitude change. And then the other one is practice. And you don't need any extra time for practice because you can be mindful in whatever you are doing. So I told her that like if you are in the training and somebody is trying to share, you know, what you're supposed to do in this situation, many times your mind is going all over make an intention to be present in the moment. So when you bring yourself present in the moment, not only you become more mindful and your stress level goes down, but you understand what is being communicated with you more. If you are, let's say, washing the dishes and you make the intention of becoming mindful and start kind of observing what you're doing, just the simple movement of hand and those soap suds and just the blessing of being able to move and have the water to wash the dishes. Because <laughs> many of the developing countries we come from, you know, we didn't have hot, warm water to wash the dishes in winter or not even the water to wash many times or wait for the water to collect. So just kind of having that appreciation while you are doing what you are doing is the practice of mindfulness. You do not need any extra time for becoming mindful. It's just the matter of becoming aware and attentive intention of being present in the moment is also mindfulness. And therefore you can do it anytime, anywhere, and it would help you decrease your stress, which plays a role in both depression and diabetes. So thank you for joining. Until next time, Dr. Rosina.